Hi everyone, it's Joakim Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Ken Go, the co-founder and CEO of Decca Games, based out of Berlin, Germany. Decca is a games company that hosts live games that they've acquired from other developers who first developed and launched the games. These games include Knights and Dragons, Prime City, Modern War, and Kingdom Age. We'll now hear more about Decca Games from Ken himself. We all know that developing a great game is one thing, but developing a great games business can be something else entirely. That's why some of the top game developers in the industry use IronSource's Game Growth platform, which takes care of both sides of the business, helping you monetize and to fuel your user acquisition. I for one wish we were using these guys in the early days of Next Games. You might also have heard of their Level Up podcast and a Medium blog. In terms of gaming content, this blog is up there with the best, featuring game industry experts talking all things game design, development, and growth. See for yourself by searching for Iron Source Level Up on Medium or Spotify. Hi, Ken. Welcome to the show. Hi there. So, these days in Berlin, are you scared at all? <laughs> or is ah, no, I'm not scared. Yeah. But definitely taking you know, all the proper precautions now. You know, luckily at DECA, we've been uh, a distributed team from the beginning. So, you know, now having to have people work from home uh, is definitely, uh, I think, a good idea for most companies, but also not too disruptive for us. So it's not too worrying from either like a personal or a professional perspective. Yeah, I guess we have all the tools in place, so it shouldn't be. It's just a process getting into that process. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, let's get going. and. I wanted to first start off with like, how did you make your way into the to the games industry and to eventually found Deca? Yeah, well, I've been in the industry for I guess at least a dozen, almost uh, 14, 15 years now. Uh, I started my 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 journey into gaming um, at Electronic Arts, like a lot of people in the industry. Um, I had just come out of consulting where I had been doing a bunch of work with eBay. Um, helping build their uh, their stores platform, and Electronic Arts was trying at this time. This was kind of like two thousand and seven ish or two thousand six. They were trying to figure out how they go to direct to consumer and how do I how do they bring more things online. So at the time, you know, Steam was was hitting its peak of popularity um, just in the beginning, and Electronic Arts was wanting to build up a competitor. So I joined and uh, I joined a team that was building up EA's version of Steam, um, which is now called EA Origins. And I was a producer on that team. And we were bringing PC games from the catalog in, to direct to download. And eventually our team ended up building out a platform for microtransactions, which is you know kind of the beginning of free-to-play for, for the industry. Yeah, so that's, the, that's an early beginning of, of, my, yeah. of my history. Yeah, you went to like EA. That was before Facebook. Yeah, so from from EA, I I joined a startup called Outspark, which was bringing over Korean and Asian MMORPGs downloadables to to the West. So this is just at the very beginning when 
free to play games were really not didn't really exist in the in the western countries and people were deciding that okay we're going online um, everything is going digital um, let's also try microtransactions um, so I joined a startup after after my time at at EA uh, and from there you know the, the the industry really evolved quite rapidly you know everything went into free to play it went from PC downloadables quickly into Facebook into social games and from there I was lucky to jump on that train as well and, and worked at a company called Playdom which was then uh, eventually acquired by Disney and Disney from there I went and moved into uh, Kabam uh, which was at the time when I joined was called Water Cooler and I uh, had a long history there yeah that name man I didn't I haven't heard that name for a while it's like flashback 20 10 years ago <laughs> yeah it's a long time ago yeah when I joined they had just um transitioned away from building Facebook apps and like social community apps into games yeah uh, they had just launched their game Kingdoms of Camelot at the time, right. and then they had completely then pivoted into building games only. And the uh, Kabam was joining, uh, you know, joining the likes of Zynga and Playdom at the time that were really heavily aggressively growing on the Facebook platform. Uh, but instead of going after the more casual audience, um, Water Cooler was looking at the hardcore, midcore audience. So Kingdoms of Camelot was a big strategy game. And it was kind of the first, I'd say, non-casual game that really hit it big on, on Facebook. And we were luckily the first. And as it grew, they decided to bring in more gaming talent into the company. And given my experience uh, with free-to-play and knowing some of the people in the company, they brought me on um, initially to look at payments and monetization. And very quickly, though, as the game grew, they decided that they needed some uh, additional experience in live ops and eventually i just took over the game completely as the executive producer as it, it scaled and as the company grew and as the company grew they decided that they really wanted to accelerate its growth so when i joined the company it was about 40 people and at its peak kabam was over a thousand and they ended up setting up different studios in four or five different countries and locations across the u.s china canada and uh, my role ended up evolving quite a bit. You know, I moved in after um, taking on just that one project, Teams of Camelot. We decided that we needed to move a lot of our best practices of all the things that we learned on our first game to all of the subsequent studios that were being built up um, across the world. So I moved into a more centralized role, which took live operations, best practices from KFC, Kings of Camelot, uh, each to the different games and studios that were being built. Uh, and over time, as the company grew to that thousand people, they decided that they wanted to reorganize and move all of that, inf uh, that information and knowledge into the studios. And that's when they actually decided that they wanted to invest a lot more into Europe. So they had me and shipped me off to Berlin, where I'm now. And they wanted me to set up a uh, European publishing headquarters. And at the time, we had a tiny office in, in Luxembourg doing mostly customer support and localization. And they asked me to pick a location where, um, where we could grow the, grow the team and really focus a lot more on servicing our European customers a lot, a lot more closely. And that meant um, you know, in-game events, uh, sales and promotions, as well as an increased focus on marketing and growing the territory. So we ended up building a 100-person team in Berlin. Uh, 
and then basically as quickly as we built up the team, um, the strategy shifted again. So uh, then the, we had luckily, Kaban had a huge uh, success at that time in Contest of Champions, which grew very rapidly and w- quickly became you know, the biggest earner in the company. And then all of the focus shifted to that game. Uh, which is, you know, a lot of you know, all of this history of Kabam is, is relevant because that's exactly how DECA got started. Uh, Kabam was, you know, a rocket ship and it had this huge success on its hands and had one game, Contest of Champions, that was making 400 million a year. And then it had the rest of the portfolio, which was, you know, more than a dozen products that was making, you know, 10 to 20 million a year. And Kabam decided uh, at that point, you know, why are we really focusing as much effort on these other products as we are on our biggest product? It, it didn't really make sense for them. They, you know, so they shifted strategy at that time to what they called the blockbuster approach, where they, uh, just like in the movies, where you have bigger budgets and bigger investment because you know that uh, the launches are going to be bigger and bigger. They decided to to shift to that strategy and really focus a lot less on these older games that were more mature and not really growing and really then shift all the resources to new projects, R&D, and really big launches. And at that point, they decided to divest that portfolio. So they found a couple of different partners to buy those games from them. And then my role shifted to helping transition the operations from my team uh, to these new partners who were going to take over these games. And in that process, I saw that was a pretty serious win-win for both sides. So Kabam, you know, his strategy was sound. It was logical. It made sense to really focus on its biggest, biggest games and making new bigger games. And then for the other companies that were taking over these products, it, it was a great acquisition for them. They were taking over really good products with really great communities, very profitable businesses. And immediately they were able to continue the operations improve those products, bring down some of the costs and continue those games. And they're all still running today. So I, I saw this happening and I said, wow, this is actually a really interesting process and business and uniquely positioned for, for my skill set and my experience, having been running these games and been running live operations for, for Kabam for the, for the last six years. And that's when I decided that mm, I wanted to tackle this this opportunity myself and I set up Decca Games at that time. So yeah, that's where I saw the opportunity that gave me the the light bulb flash to to think about it. And then from that point forward, you know, I started discussing with the leaders at Kabam about, you know, whether they could support me in this process. Um, as you know, my role was going to be very much more diminished after after moving all these products out. And there happened to be one uh, one product left in the portfolio that really wasn't highly sought after. And luckily I was able to convince uh, Kevin the founder to let me take over that product. And we then, that how we got started with, with that first game, which was called Realm of the Mad God. So Realm of the Mad God was our first product. And um, lucky enough, after we took it over, it was a huge success for us. So it, it was a game that was very much left for dead by Kabam because it was very much a small game. It was uh, a browser game. So they had shifted their focuses to their bigger products, their mobile products. And even though this product was very much well-loved, had a great reputation in the industry, um, it wasn't really getting a lot of support by that time. And so when we took it over, we really took an emphasis on community and really involving ourselves with the, the, the players that were still playing the game, as well as the players that had 
uh, were kind of just waiting and seeing what was going to happen with the game. And as soon as they saw that we were taking it over and saw that our intentions were really good and our philosophy was really about the long term and trying to make these games survive and reinvigorate them, they really got behind us and started supporting us. And you know, the, the month after we took it over, it more than doubled in both an audience and paying users. So that really was, uh, you know, our best, <laughs> the best thing that could ever happen to us. And that set us forth from that point forward of really tackling this opportunity industry. Yeah, that's, that's a very unique story for an entrepreneur in gaming, like coming up with this idea. Walk me through kind of like, if you don't want to bring up this particular gaming example, but like, how, what is the usual case there? Like, what kind of a team is in place with a game that you're acquiring? And then how do you set up a team that really like does that work to actually achieve like a good momentum again for an old game? Yeah, every game is a little bit different and requires a little bit different strategy. But um, for those of you guys who don't know, you know, we usually take over games and it typically does not come with people. So we're having to set up new teams from scratch in order to take over every product. Um, but we do have a core foundation of people that, you know, in my network of people who are very experienced in live operations, who understand product. So we do an evaluation prior to taking over a product to see what does that product really need in order to be a decade-long game. So like we named the company DECA because we're really all about longevity. So when we look at a product, we think about well, how can this product last another 10 years or another decade? And so that's really the lens that we look at these things. And we luckily enough, because the games have been around for a number of years, there's a lot of information, a lot of history and knowledge that we can pull from in order to figure out like what are the most key pieces of that game, what's working, where do the original team thinks is broken or not working, what kind of team did they have in place. And we look at that and we evaluate and then we look at where we think we can provide the biggest improvements. And then that's how we decide what team to put in place. And usually that means, you know, building from scratch that team and pulling the people who really want to work on these types of products. And, and that's kind of the funny thing that you find in a lot of times when you're taking over these products is that a lot of times the, you know, you have a, a studio that is used to building new products. They're not extremely excited or motivated to continue to operate a product for five, 10 years. Um, so that's one of the things that we really look for when we are building teams is that, you know, they have a passion for games as a service and they really want to have this type of um, operational um, focus instead of you know building things from scratch we're really looking for kind of more people who are willing to reverse engineer things and figure things out on the fly more entrepreneurial want to optimize versus you know build creative new um, artistic product i think there's different different schools within the industry and our people tend to be more um, operationally minded and like making things better uh, and going from something that already exists and is working quite well and making it work better and then building something from scratch. Yeah, that sounds so unique. In a sense, like you have to have people who have the passion to look at something that has been out there. Maybe it's even in a sense, like what can you add on top of this game to make it more exciting? You're already running live events, stuff like that. But like, what is it really like for these people to then start working on it and what are the usual kind of like tricks that you want to apply to the games? Well, you know, different functions have different focuses, but in general, like across the team, 
you know, there's a heavy customer focus. Yeah. So what we do in the beginning is immediately look and try to talk with the players to see, because most of these games are multiple years old and they have strong communities. So they're the communities are like really more than willing to tell you what they want and what yeah. they, they like and what they don't like. Um, but the tricky thing is, is figuring out how to prioritize those things and whether what they're saying is exactly what's best for the game. And that's where the art and the skill comes. So you need a bit of leadership and experience in order to synthesize all this feedback and all this information that's coming through and triangulate what's the best strategy for that, that game. And that's where I'd say that's where we set ourselves apart. Um, you know, it's very easy just to take exactly what players are t- saying um, and then try to do it. But then if you did that, everything would be free and you wouldn't need to pay for anything in the games. And that usually is not a great business in the long term. Yeah. So you have people who are very much customer uh, minded, are really open to taking uh, feedback from players, but then also are very experienced enough to know that um, players don't always have the right perspective. So they have to balance that against what their data says and then also their past experiences of what can go wrong and what are the risks and following that. Yeah. When you're talking to a developer, what is usually like the terms like? Is it is it more about like you take full ownership of the game? Is there rev share? Is there some money on the table? How does that work? Yeah, it works in both ways. Um, we've done both types of deals, both rev share plus um, full acquisitions for you know, just a lump sum. Uh, most of our deals have started as rev shares, so like licenses, but it really depends on what the the developer, what their situation is. A lot of times they, the reason that they're trying to give up these games is because of uh, resource constraints. They want to focus their, their time and energy on something else, but at the same time, they do really care about the product. And of course they want to maximize the value out of it. Um, so if you're like, we did a deal with Gri, which was a very big public Japanese company, and they have their own um, financial reporting and constraints that they have to do for the public markets. So they wanted to make sure that they kept the revenue. And so we we opted for a, a rev share based on this. But eventually over time, that changed and wasn't really a focus for them. And then we eventually acquired those games outright from them over time. And then... There's games like uh, Zombie Catchers, which we acquired from a two-man studio in Finland that was just a full acquisition. And they were very much more wanting to to move on to their new project very quickly. They were a small team, a small company, and they didn't have any constraints um, as the bigger ones did. So they just said, hey, we'd rather just find a really good home, uh, do a very quick process, and so that we can then move on to our, our next game launch. Mm, right, right. So it really depends what what the other side wants to do. We're of course quite flexible, and it works both ways, and, and we're pretty open. Yeah, but it usually means that no people come in the deal; <laughs> that it's just the game that is kind of like there's a handover, and that's it. Yeah, typically there is, let's say, like a couple month handover. Sometimes it's much quicker. Sometimes it's a bit longer. There's a core like two week period of time where we do heavy trainings. Um, and then after that, it's mostly just being able to answer questions when we need it or assisting us transitioning some accounts or moving some uh, infrastructure from one place to the other. It's typically, uh, yeah, no team usually comes with it, but there is uh, either a transition period or a consulting period afterwards. And if there is people available and they're willing to do a contract with us and help us 
throughout transition the, the operations more smoothly, we usually do that too. Right. There's there there has been similar activities. Like just recently, there was the uh, tilting point announced the acquisition of Star Trek timelines from the disruptor beam. Do you think that there's going to be more of these kind of people, especially like publishers, the new kind of publishers, going after these games? You know, I think it's a really interesting time in the industry, uh, and publishing is going through a very big evolution. The traditional publisher that funds games uh, development, then launches it, and then operates it for you know a decade with a external developer. I think those days are are fairly numbered, but a lot of people are now tackling publishing in different ways. And Tilting Point, um, you know, I'm not too familiar exactly how they work, but I think they are taking an interesting approach to publishing where they, they started mostly as uh, user acquisition funding. And I think that's how their relationship with Tilting Point got started. But I think similar to Scopely, they're finding that, you know, if you have a successful product or and that the relationship is good between the person funding marketing and the person doing the development, that then it just really makes a lot more sense to integrate those two things. Yeah. And if you're, uh, you know, a growing company and high growth company, um, it makes more sense to own the studio as well. So I think that's going to be a trend that you see is that uh, bigger publishers will opt to acquire developers or the products behind those. I think uh, if I read correctly for Phil Tilt- Tilting Point, um, they took some of the team. So they carved out the team and then they continued to to run the game. Um, so there wasn't change in operations, which is very different from what we do. So what we do typically is start a new team for the games and don't we do not acquire the, the teams typically. Yeah. Um, we're open to that. But I think that's what you see here in this particular deal is that they already had a, an existing relationship where they were doing the marketing of the game. And Scopely, you saw that with their Star Trek game. You know, they, they funded the, the development. They had a right to call an option to buy that studio. And if the game was successful, they make that call all the time. If the game is not successful, then they part ways and then you know, they, go their, they go their separate ways. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, there's there's probably this kind of like creative deals out there that will come up time and a time. Like, for instance, Star Trek Timelines was, I think, a five-year-old game already. So it's in a sense mature enough that somebody taking over can then put some more life into it. And I think it's not just for mature games. Also, I think you're you're going to see more and more people taking different strategies for how to successfully grow a games business. Right now, it, it's getting more competitive in the industry. And in order to be successful, you have to be able to do basically three things really well. You have to be able to develop quality product. You have to be an expert at distribution. And then you have to be an expert at operate, operating those products for as a service. And you know, to be quite honest, most studios are not going to be able to do all three of those things really well. Mm. And so it's, it's just a matter of time as people then partner to help augment their deficiencies and focus on their strengths. And eventually when you find a really good relationship, um, it becomes a better strategy to do that versus trying to do everything yourself. And then also then join forces in a more serious way and a more, um, I guess, official and formal way, and then do that together. And then together you're stronger and then the, the product can grow and grow and grow based on that partnership. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about these games. Like, have you defined the right kind of game for DECA? For us, what we're looking for is one, first profitability, um, and then second, longevity. 
And what about longevity? The ingredients that we see in that is, you know, we look at the game design, we look at the, the business itself, the, how whether it has a, a history of, of profitability, and then we look at the community. And we see whether there is a strong following of the game and whether there is this kind of brand loyalty. And typically those things allow for uh, multiple year operations. Either you have a lot of new people coming into your game or you have an extremely um, sticky game that people really rally around and, and want to stay with for, for multiple years. Is it still then when you take over the game, like you mentioned that you managed to double Realm of the Mad Gods numbers basically when you took it over? What? How do you achieve that kind of success immediately? And is it very rare or is it like your practices are, you know, you're honing your practices to actually get that achievement pretty quickly when you acquire a game? No, we don't expect every game to double in size immediately taking it over. Um, we're very much more practical. And every game is a different different use case. I think you expect the same results on every single thing you do you're 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 just setting yourself up for failure <laughs> um, but you know there is an evaluation process and phase prior to us taking on a product and we are quite picky but we're also in, intentional in, in the investments that we do yeah. so not every game we expect to increase and actually we don't expect most games to increase um, but we still believe in the longevity so you have i, I think people vastly underestimate how long games can last and how long people will stick with games so you know kingdoms of camelot now that i worked on is over 10 years old and still kicking and it has no signs of slowing down uh, as far as i can tell from the outside yeah um but nobody even five years ago would have thought that that game would still be around today so even if it's not growing and increasing, the there is a core audience to these to these games that will continue to play multiple years in the future. And the tricky the tricky part is making sure that you're providing them a high quality service, entertaining experience that makes them want to stay. And so even if it's not a growth scenario, but it's a long term uh, retention scenario, that's also a success for us. And that's really what we're looking for. If if it grows and increases, that's that's gravy. But if it's just stable and we're retaining these high-value players or these this core core group of super fans, that's really what our our core hypothesis is. Yeah. Do you look at specific metrics when you're acquiring a game, or is it more, you know, you're seeing that there's a stable user base there? Yeah, it depends on the the game itself. But you know, high level, it is fairly similar. You know, you're looking at the activity metrics. You're looking at the number of lifetime like the lifetime audience and how that's trending over time and whether there's the you know we also because of our background from coming back from kudam we look at the per user monetization as well and see what they're doing within their games so if it's a core game that has lots of events and promotions we try to look at that more closely to see not necessarily from a kpi perspective but to look at what they are actually doing what they're not doing and that can be a potential positive for us if we come in and we can say immediately, based from our past experience, these are the things that we would do in these situations. And maybe that's an opportunity for us to improve the metrics. So it's not always the existing metrics, but also the existing operations and what we know from our past experience of things that we would try and the expected improvement from, from the things that we would do instead of um, what has been done in the past. Yeah. How conservative are you with the user acquisition with these games? 
Well, so actually our business is interesting because it doesn't rely on user acquisition at all. So we have yeah. not done any user acquisition for any of our games today. And that was, oh, really? one, of core, yeah, that was like one of the core uh, theses of the company was that that's one of the things that's getting more complicated and harder to succeed at within the industry is that just yeah. prices for, for players are just going up, up, and up and not expected to really stop. So that's why we focus not only because of my experience, but also because we see this happening macroeconomically in the industry that competing for this a finite number of users is only going to get more expensive. So that's why this is interesting from, from a business model perspective, because you're, we're in fact acquiring lots and lots of users all at once. Um, they just happen to be playing the game that we're buying. And because the games are already profitable, we can spend on user acquisition if we think it makes sense, but the core business doesn't need it. It doesn't, it's not necessary. Uh, the, the main thing that's important for us is the retention and reactivation of the existing user base. So in a sense, you guys are looking at a game that's live. It has an audience that's never going to leave. <laughs> like the, the kind of like that customer who's going to stick around with the game for 10 years still. And that's, you're betting on those guys to stay once you take over and start operating. Exactly, yeah. I mean, for our, for our existing portfolio, that has been the core hypothesis. Um, and we've seen this in a lot of the games that we've worked on in the past. Mm. Uh, that will evolve over time, though. I will say that you know our strategy will not just stay in taking over these older, mature games. Eventually, we will find games that have growth um, growth potential, and we will invest into user acquisition. But it's not going to rely only on that. You're going to see more and more. You have some companies who are just really experts at user acquisition, and uh, I guess Tilting Point, for instance, maybe they're they're heavily focused on user acquisition, so they will be looking at how can they look at a product from a scale perspective, where we are coming at it more from a longevity perspective. And that might mean that we need to continue to run user acquisition, but we still wouldn't expect it to be a, a rocket ship. We would then expect it to just maintain this existing core base and adding in just enough people so that the, the total activity level stays kind of constant for for long for long periods of time right. so we're very much more focused on profitability than we are at just super growth yeah yeah i i really love your contrarian approach to to free to play and development it's so different but like how do you get people excited to join the company to work on titles that are are at this stage like even though you're talking about like bringing on games that are more at an earlier stage, but at the moment, you're still working with the titles that might be five to 10 years old. Like, how yeah. do you get people excited there? You know, I think there's, there's different types of people in the industry, and not everybody wants to spend multiple years building a game to launch it and then roll the dice to see if it's successful. There is, you know, I think that's the typical game developer in the industry, but I think a lot of people um, like being able to make an impact very quickly and see the results very quickly. And that's, that's how it worked for me. When I got into the industry, I thought I wanted to work on the next FIFA, the next NBA live game, because that was the, the highlight that I grew up with. Like those are the types of games that I grew up playing. 
Um, but then as I started working on games, I realized that I didn't have a lot of patience. <laughs> actually, like, I actually liked live operations more because I could make a change from, I could have an idea in the morning and implement it uh, in an hour and see the results in the next hour. Yeah. And I think that's what draws a lot of people to live ops. And those people uh, flock to us because this is our focus. You have some companies who are um, they're great at building a new product and people who are good operators, they tend to get frustrated in those environments because they're kind of the, the, the stepchild that is kind of underloved and their skill set is, is not really valued in those environments sometimes. Where for us, we have a 100% focus and that is our core strength. And, and people kind of know that about us. So people who have been in this industry and have worked on live games, um, they feel valued and validated within our structure. As well as you have people who are, I guess in the last few years, you've seen so many studios shut down. So people are, are really looking more for stability and a really good environment these days. So there's, um, there's all these different factors that you have different people looking for different things in the industry. And I think people forget about that sometimes. Um, the other thing that we, we do is that, as I mentioned in the beginning of the, of the podcast, that we are pretty much a 100% remote team. Uh, we do have an office in Berlin, but we don't expect people to come into the office unless they want to. And then we also have 70 plus people working in 13 different countries right now. So we're able to pull from a really large talent pool and pick the people who, one, they like, they, they want nice opportunities in a really good environment, but maybe they also need this flexibility to work from the location wherever they're at. So all these things create a um, self-selecting process of people who, one, want to work on live games, who need flexibility, who want stability, but also believe that we are doing something really interesting in the industry. Yeah. But there must be some challenges. Can you give some details on what is really hard with the model that you're doing at Deco? Yeah, no, I, definitely taking over other people's technology and products is is difficult. It's much easier to start from scratch uh, with no constraints sometimes. And so when we take over products, we basically expect spaghetti code and a lot of technical yeah. debt yeah. and lots of uh, constraints. And anybody who's worked on a live product knows that uh, you expect problems, you expect fires, and that's part of the job and that's part of responsibilities is how you react to those things. And, yeah. and that's, that's um, not always fun, um, but in some ways it's very exciting because it's a problem that you have to solve and work around in order to be successful. So there's, uh, there's definitely games where, you know, you can see from a product perspective, all these improvements that you know you want to make and it would make a difference. But then from a technical perspective, it either is going to be too risky or too challenging or too time intensive. So you have to park those ideas. And that's, um, that's sometimes uh, frustrating, but that's just part of, part of the business. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Ken, I, I have some short hot seat questions for you. Are you ready? Yeah. Uh, startup life is often scary for the founder. How do you personally deal with feelings of failing and this kind of like the, the underlying kind of like suppressed feelings? You know, this is this is a good question. Um, definitely, every startup founder always feels like they're failing, even if they're not. Even uh, today, I think we, we were quite successful, but sometimes I feel like you know the the ball could drop at any minute. Yeah, and. 
I would say this is not my strength. <laughs> I would say I'm, the, I'm not the poster child for having everything answered. In fact, this is probably one of my bigger weaknesses. Um, but what I've done, uh, and it helps sometimes, is to bring in outside uh, perspectives. So either friends, family, uh, advisors, to come in and just have somebody to talk to you about yeah, the problems that you're, um, that you're facing, your concerns, your fears. And a lot of times they will say, hey, Dude, you're, 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 you're retarded. You're, um, <laughs> <laughs> why are you thinking this way? Cause a lot of times the fear is coming from some unknown place and it's more rational. And once you actually explain it to somebody, you realize that you are being a little bit irrational and, and illogical. And that really just makes you feel better by just explaining to somebody and having them reassure you that, you know, you're not either, you're not doing the, the wrong thing or that you're actually doing all the right things. And that makes you just feel like you're, you know, the outcome sometimes is not always under your control, but to know that you're doing the right things, no matter what, gives you that sense of security and that comfort that, okay, I'm doing my job. I'm doing my responsibilities the right way. I'm making the right decisions. What kind of common industry advice do you disagree with? Also a good question. Um, I think, I don't know if it's advice, I would say, but there's some misconceptions in the industry that, uh, that games is a hits driven business and that you have to pretend like you're either a super hit or you're not. And that's the definition of success. And I think that's really, uh, an unnatural and unhealthy ex expectation. And I don't think it's actually right. I, I think the, the games industry is still growing. Uh, it's highly competitive. It's getting even more competitive than ever before, but it's still the biggest form of media in the world. And I think people need to evolve their strategies now to evolve with the industry. And that's still going to allow for success. And if you look at every single evolution of the industry, people were always coming up with new strategies. And when people least expected it, new, new leaders emerged. And you see that kind of more recently, everybody said that, okay, the, the, the leaderboards are not changing, uh, the, the industry's dead. And then all of a sudden you have all these hyper-casual games that come out and came with just a different strategy and are for, for whether you like them or not, they're, they're quite successful. Yeah. And I think that's only going to continue. There's people evolving and, and changing and coming up with new strategies. And I also think this is the most exciting time. And that's why I really like what we're doing because mm. uh, I like coming up with contrarian strategies and I like thinking about how to be successful. It's kind of like a, a meta game. It's the yes. game in our game. And then it's, it's a strategy game of trying to figure out what's the strategy that's going to create the best outcome. Yeah. And I think uh, the industry needs to continue to think that way and not only try to do what was successful in the past or follow fast follow things that look like they're successful, but really think hard about what you can do differently and how you can play to your strengths and how the industry is going to evolve um, naturally in the coming years so that you can set yourself up and your team up for success. Yeah. I definitely agree with that disagreement. So, <laughs> uh, Do you ever fear about making hard decisions? You know, this is exact, uh, probably the same answer as the first question in the hot seat, that it's uh, the fear of failing, the fear of failing and making hard decisions. I think those go hand in hand. Uh, you always worry about making the wrong decision, which would then lead to failure. 
Yeah. And I'm, again, uh, this is definitely not my strong suit. I uh, people who know me know that I really uh, think very hard about the decisions that I make, and that I'm not a very quick decision maker. I, I really like to evaluate all the pros and cons and multiple options before before moving. Um, but again, I would give the same advice for the as the first um, question that you asked me that uh, you get past these things by ensuring that you know why you're making those decisions uh, and then validating those decisions with an outside perspective, either that your team that exists and your management, making sure that they, they don't have any concerns or you, that making sure that you've thought about it correctly or bringing in an outside advisor an outside perspective in to just say, Hey, you know, this is how I've been thinking about it. Do you think this is the right way to think about it? And a lot of times um, you're probably thinking about it the right way, but sometimes you just need an outside perspective to tell you that, um, that you might have missed something. But it's never an easy thing. I, don't, I think every, every founder, every big team has to make very hard decisions. And that's the role of a leader in any company is to make decisions. So that's, um, that's, that's just an expectation. Yeah. Let's go more deeper into these kind of like fear situations. What, what has been your worst 24 hours in the games industry? Oh, wow. Um, every, every person who's run a live game has, I think, these experiences where you think you've, you've ruined the game <laughs> by, by accident. Yeah, so for, I think there's probably a dozen times where I thought that maybe I had done something or I'd made a decision that, that would drastically change the future of, of the, the game or the business. I guess for one example, for instance, was when I was running Kingdoms of Camelot, there was a release into the game and accidentally there was a bug that got introduced that granted too many items to people of, of something that was high value. And that alone was pretty problematic, but the problem also that happened that escalated was then somebody took the decision to try to claw back those items from people. Mm -hmm. And in the process, started deleting items that weren't supposed to be deleted as well. Not only did we, yeah. yeah, so we have these uh, potentially game-breaking problems that happen sometimes. And at the time that it's happening, you don't really know how grave an issue it is. And you don't really know how to react. And the um, in reaction might make it worse. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's really test the strengths of, of your team and your own, like the, your previous questions of really second guessing whether you're making the right decisions. But yeah. you have to be, you have to be ready for those things. And, and at that time, <laughs> Kingdoms of Camelot was the flagship game of Camelot, uh, of Kamehameha. Mm -hmm. We were accounting for like 90% of the company's revenue. Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously the whole team felt a lot of pressure to, to, to be successful. And the, the thought that we might have ruined the game meant that we probably were going to ruin the company as well. So that was an extra set of pressure. And that was really um, a lot of weight on the, all the team's shoulders. And a lot of people were, were wondering whether, whether we were making the right calls and whether we were, you know, whether what the impact was going to be in the long run. But we ended up, you know, <laughs> thankfully we ended up recovering from that scenario. So you know, we went up, becoming very generous with the players, showing them that we had made a mistake, owning up to the problems that we, that we had made, uh, granting them all the, uh, so rolling back some of the changes that we made, 
but then also granting these people lots of generous uh, items that made up for the mistakes that we made and the downtime that had that was caused. Um, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it wasn't perfect, um, but it granted us enough good faith from the community that, like I mentioned, they're still playing this game 10 years later. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like with these games, like if your core is working for a certain audience, you can't really screw it up with a bad update or something. Like a month later, it's back to normal usually. Yeah, or it gives you know every day you have another opportunity to improve that or or come back from that mistake. You know, so you might have lost something in that process, but the next day you can make it back. You know, you can introduce something new to the game, you can involve the economy. You can introduce new features. And that's the, that's the great thing about games as a service is that uh, it's constantly evolving and you always you always have room to improve it. Or if we're, as much risk there is in failure, there's just as much chance for success. Yeah. Hey, some final questions for you. What's your favorite book and why? Oh, man. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite one book, but I books that I would, I guess, recommend or that I really enjoyed. Uh, When I was young, I read the Dragonlance novels um, that were part of the Dungeons and Dragons uh, series. And that was this was a really interesting um, set of books. Um, Highly recommend it. And that really got me into fantasy and I think evolved and really got me into games eventually as, um, as it was a really natural evolution from fantasy uh, books to then fantasy games. So check out those books. Yeah, will do. Do you have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today? Hmm. Good question. Um, you know, when I first started in the, uh, just working in general, I had a, I guess when you're in consulting, they have what they call a, a career coach. So you get assigned a, as a kind of mentor, somebody who's more experienced, somebody that is in charge of your career in in the company, and he gave me some advice at the time. Um, how to, you know, I had just come out of school and was like one or two years in in the work environment, and he told me you should treat your career like like a story, like a book um, that you have. You should try to have a sense of a narrative that, okay, this is where you are. This is where you want to get to. And then think about the interim chapters in between. And I think that's really helped me in my life so far where, you know, I always knew that I I really liked games and I really wanted to be in uh, the entertainment industry. I didn't really know exactly how that was going to, going to evolve today, but with that kind of guiding light and every step that I took from there, um, it helped me to then think about that narrative and what would be chapter two or chapter three, eventually getting to the end, which for me was starting my own company. Um, but for everybody, it might be a different ending or a different a different story. But I think having that in mind of, okay, where do I want to get to? And what's a way that, you know, how would this story unfold if it was to be in chapters, I think was a really good good thing that I recommend, something that has helped me in, on my way. That's great. Thanks. Thanks for sharing, Ken. Well, hey, as the last question, what is the best way for people to get in contact with you if they want to have a chat? 
Uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn's the best way to reach me. Um, connect me there. Uh, email sometimes uh, gets drowned out with all the other stuff that's going on. But LinkedIn, if you connect with me there, uh, I'll be sure to hit you back. Great. Thanks a lot, Ken, for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks a lot, Ken, for coming on the show. The new online course, Pitch Your Games Company, is live on Elite Game Developers' website. If you're looking to raise funding for your gaming startup or want to know what it's all about, I recommend that you take a look at it. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.